for listening to Remnant Bible Fellowship. This is Brother Jonathan. Today we're going to be starting a series discussing Calvinism and uh, some particular things regarding some of their views. This is not going to be a deep dive, but some main points in the positive arguing against their views. So today we're going to be starting in this series discussing foreknowledge. I do apologize if my voice sounds a little raspy or uh, deeper, less clear than usual, because I am coming. I am sick with a cold right now, and so I will have to probably edit out a few sniffles throughout this uh, recording. Uh, this actually we went through in person in our uh, local Bible study uh, just this past week, and so I have gone over this already with our group. But just to start out with, in discussing foreknowledge, uh, kind of basing this series around loose, very very loosely, Romans eight verse 29 and 30, where we read, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Now this is often called the golden chain. Uh, the golden chain of salvation. Unbreakable, right? And, it, and on the face of it, Whenever it's presented that way, it seems like just it's it's pretty straightforward because it's presented as like, oh, see, everybody whom he foreknew, he predestinated, and everybody whom he predestinated, he called, and everybody whom he called, he justified, and then everyone whom he justified, he also glorified. And here's the thing about it. Yeah, that's true. But the way in which it's presented by Calvinists is wrong. And we have to start with the first thing in the order of which Paul presents it. I know Calvinists try to switch things around. They try to put predestination and foreknowledge, you switch them around, or they conflate the two and say that, you know, well, foreordination or predestination is the same thing as foreknowledge. And if you do that, then you're pretty much, you're not basing it on the text. And so they will argue and say, well, one's a logical order and one is a chronological order, right? Well, no. The order that Paul says it is intended to be the logical order, and it's also the chronological order. There's no reason in the text to ever assume anything different, especially when taking into other passages, that uh, one which we'll look at next time. And so Paul starts with foreknowledge. And it is true. The system that is called Calvinism, or Reformed theology, it all starts with a certain view of God's nature, his attributes, regarding how does he know things? like knowing things before they come to pass, foreknowledge. But Calvinism, we'll just start and we'll define that really quickly. It is a system, and it was a it is a system, even I talked to a Calvinist just the other day, who admitted that, no, it's a system that didn't exist in its present form, and generally speaking, until, you know, the 1800s, really. Because even Calvin, John Calvin, one of the, a Reformed teacher, did not really clearly or consistently tie out his theology or explain it. He can contradict himself. doesn't seem like he really knew what he believed in certain aspects. and just contradicted himself constantly. But the attribute that he believed very clearly was about God's foreknowledge. But really quickly, Calvinism is usually summarized with an acronym called TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. Now, but all of these phrases or terms are very pregnant with meaning. And so it is a system. These things are just used to summarize 
main points of that system. There's a lot behind these things that are very interconnected. But briefly, there's the idea of total depravity, which is the idea that man cannot come to God in any sense of his own volition. He cannot respond positively to anything God does. God has to begin the process. And to a certain point in that, yes, of course, I believe that. But the problem is what Calvinists do, and they take it beyond that to start saying things about God's nature that are not biblical. So yes, no man can come unto God unless the Father draw him. I have no problem with that. I'm still not going to say that I'm a one-point Calvinist, because what they do with that, as R.C. Sproul himself said, if you convince somebody of Calvinism's definition of total depravity, then the, the rest logically follows. Why? Because in that part of it, there is a definition of God's understanding of foreknowledge, how he knows things, that is very, very unbiblical, which is what we're going to be talking about in this um, lesson, sermon, whatever you want to call it. But the U is unconditional election. Calvinism, again, generally speaking, there is a wide range of beliefs within Calvinism and Reformed theology as a whole. It is a very broad spectrum. But one unifying aspect of them is they believe in unconditional election. Pretty much, salvation is unconditional. God saves whom he will as he wills, which is, again, a true statement, but not how Calvinists mean it. So pretty much according to them, there is no condition for election or salvation. No condition at all. And Calvin and them fought very hard against that idea. Um, next is limited atonement. Calvinist, a consistent Calvinist, does not believe that Jesus died for all mankind. He did not give himself as a ransom for all. And really, even beyond that, God doesn't desire all to be saved. Uh, Calvin himself wrote about that, and many of them go out. So you can't tell people, well, God loves you, because according to them, you don't know. So they don't believe, again, consistent Calvinists that are five-pointers don't believe in, in a universal atonement, that Christ did pay for the sins of the world. They also believe irresistible grace. If God is drawing you, you can do nothing to resist. They have to believe this in order for their system. Uh, and then also P, perseverance of the saints. Uh, pretty much the common idea of eternal security, though they don't like that wording a lot of times because there's a lot of false things. And there's some things that they themselves generally will fight against, um, at least the consistent Calvinists. They generally will say that a Calvinist will obey God. And so every time you hear somebody defend the idea of, you know, whether or not somebody can fall away by continuing in sin, and they retort, well, no, a believer will follow God, or God will draw them back. That's really coming from a Calvinistic viewpoint. And there are many sub-Calvinists or moderate Calvinists who are just the average Baptist eternal security kind of viewpoint that they would... They take issue with the rest of Calvinism, but inconsistently they will hold on to certain things from Calvinism when someone is converted. So they say, well, yeah, of course salvation is conditional, because once you're saved, you have to choose to follow him, right? But then it's unconditional once you're converted. And so some of them will say, well, no, it's unconditional. And then they don't want to acknowledge the other four points. So I've met and talked to pastors who are very inconsistent and honestly very confused as to their theology. Many just want their cake and eat it, to have, be able to have their cake and eat it too. They want to be able to cling to certain things of libertarian free will, and man having a certain kind of free will to choose, but then they want to take away that choice when somebody becomes converted. And so just understand, that's just a brief topic introduction to Calvinism as a whole. It is a very 
complex system, really basically logically deducing all of these secondary points from one idea, and that is foreknowledge. How does God know all things? Now, here's a quote. Uh, Robert Pick, really, who is an Arminian, calls himself a re reformed Arminian. He uh, holds to the views of Jacobus Arminius himself and the first Remonstrants, not the modern-day pe uh, people who call themselves Remonstrants, not the Hugo Grotius kind of people, the open theists. You know, what you can actually classically call an Arminian, actually the writings of Arminius himself. And I have to say all that because Calvinists misrepresent anybody who's not Calvinist to defend themselves, because I have honestly never heard a Calvinist accurately define opposing viewpoints. But Robert Picker really sums up very well this basic idea of Calvinism, at the very heart of it that leads to all other points. And he says, quote, Calvinists affirm that all events, including future ones, are certain and foreknown because God has predetermined all events. Now, what that means is that they say Calvinism, is at least classically um, and generally, believe that God only knows all things because he himself is the cause of all things. He has determined or decreed sovereignly all things to happen. The consistent ones, like on John Piper's ministry page, I think Talbot writes that even he includes rape and the molestation of children. And, of course, they will appeal to mystery, uh, James White and them, the consistent ones, will appeal to mystery as to how God is not the actual cause of these things. He's just the one who decrees these things to happen, puts these desires into people, and then they freely choose, not freely, to do them. It, it is a confusing thing because it's absolute nonsense. And this is not historical Christianity. It's not. It's not in the Bible. It is a perversion of biblical Christianity that didn't exist for centuries after the apostles. And that's an objective fact. And so just so we know that it's not this is not a perversion of the Calvinist viewpoint, Louis Burkhoff, who is a Calvinist, a respected Calvinist theologian, said, quote, His foreknowledge of future things and also of contingent events rests on his decree. Um, Shedd, Hodge, and all these other ones say the exact same things. Even MacArthur and them will say that today, John Piper and them. They will say everything is known by God because he has decreed all things to happen. And this is why consistent Calvinists openly admit that they hold to a form of determinism. Um, and this is a philosophical viewpoint. Or, and some of them will twist this and they will say, well, it's just a soft determinism, which they call compatibilism, by redefining what free will is. They'll say, um, well, they'll change what the meaning of free will is, whereas, you know, classically free will is being able to choose to do different than what you do, right? So if you choose to open a door, you're doing it, but you know that you have the ability and choice to choose to not open a door, right? That is free will. You will choose one or the other, but... You are free to choose the other. That's free will, a libertarian free will. And they say, well, free will is free to do as one desires. And I believe it was John Jonathan Edwards who started doing this. Why? Because they say, well, God determines what you desire. And so if you are free to choose what you desire, they still keep determinism. Now, determinism, uh, 
Here's a, a concise encyclopedia of the philosophy of religion. Basic definition. At its simplest, determinism denotes the belief that whatever occurs is determined by antecedent causes or conditions. It appears that the future is already fixed. Now, it's important to understand that a biblical view of salvation and doctrine in general does include foreknowledge, predestination, election, calling, etc., because some people will overreact to Calvinism's use of these words. And there's a lot of overlap. You know, I do agree with Calvinists on some things, some parts or aspects of what they say. It's just they redefine things. And so the difference is that while many use the same vocabulary, they are indeed using a different definition of the words. So same vocabulary list, different dictionary. And so this is why when you're discussing things with people or looking up certain teachers and what they teach and what they believe, make sure you understand how they are using words. That's how many people get deceived and led away and seduced by Calvinism. They think it gives ideas, uh, they think it gives answers to questions that frankly a lot of local pastors don't ever preach on, and that's just a fact. And so Calvinism seems like a nice little package that seems logical if you accept certain premises that are wholly unbiblical, and one of them being the idea of foreknowledge that they teach. So foreknowledge, as it comes from the Greek in the New Testament, comes from the Greek word prognosko. Um, it means to know beforehand or in advance, to have foreknowledge. Now, even in BDAG, which is the academically accepted common work uh, lexicon for study of the Greek New Testament, one of the definitions is very, very biased, and it is a Calvinist definition of the word. And it's to choose beforehand. Well, I'm sorry, that's that's really not sustained scripturally. And so just the simple meaning to know beforehand, if you go beyond that, in certain ways, you're just assuming your theology in your definitions. And so you have to be careful. You can't just accept everything that people say. But the general meaning, prognosco, is it's only used a handful of times in the New Testament. So there's all this confusion about words like predestination and foreknowledge when there's really only a handful of occurrences of these words in the New Testament. Now, when you get into election or calling, there's more. But for these first two terms, foreknowledge and predestination, there's really not a lot to say scripturally because it's, it's, it's honestly, in my mind, it's a very straightforward topic. So the verses that are used scripturally in this, in the entire New Testament, there's about seven, I believe. And then you, if you include the noun form of it as opposed to the verb form of it, you have Acts 26.5, Romans 8.29, Romans 11.2, 1 Peter 1.20, 2 Peter 3.17, and in its noun form, prognosis, Acts 2.23, and 1 Peter 1.2. And so you have these occurrences. That's literally all of them in the New Testament. So let's just start talking about what is foreknowledge. We kind of talked about briefly in the sense it's knowing things beforehand. That's pretty simple, and that's really all it is. Simply, God knows what will happen before it happens. Now, a lot of it comes down to how it, it how God knows all things before they happen. Well, this is part of his omniscience, the fact that he does indeed know all things. This includes things that have not yet happened. Why? Well, because God is eternal and infinite in his being, his essence, his power. He's not limited 
by time at all. He pre-exists time itself. And he really, he, he uh, is after time itself because he is called the beginning and the end, the first and the last. There is nothing before him and there will be nothing after him. He says in Isaiah 42, verses 8 and 9, he says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things. Before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. In Isaiah 44, 7, he says, who is like me? And he, you see, constantly he'll, he'll tie in his omniscience and his foreknowledge to the fact that he is God and he alone is God. He says, who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation. And let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. He's appealing to his, own, his foreknowledge to demonstrate that he alone is God. And he goes on to Isaiah 46.10. He says, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish my good pleasure. Now, this is not only the idea that God looks down through the future with the time machine and simply knows. It's much deeper than that. There are Calvinists who will mock um, Arminian viewpoints, and I would just say biblical viewpoints, because I don't identify as an Arminian. It's wrong to just call yourself by labels constantly. And they will say, well, it's like God got into a DeLorean and went through the future, and he saw what was going to happen, and that's what he chose. No, that's not the biblical idea of foreknowledge alone. Now, pre-science, which is what that is, just knowing beforehand, that is a major component of it. Why? Because that's the basic meaning of the word. But yes, there is more than that, and some of that we'll talk about next time. So it does include other things, like God knowing beforehand what others will choose, and then based on the conditions that he has set, things that he has decreed, such as condition, he acknowledges somebody as his own beforehand. But then you're getting into predestination and election, which is what Calvinists want. They want predestination or foreordination and election to be included and conflated with foreknowledge. But that's just simply not biblical. Foreknowledge is just that. It's knowledge. It's not influence. Okay? But we're going to get into that, so I'm getting ahead of myself. But God doesn't only know what will happen. His omniscience and foreknowledge include what may happen. That is, he also knows all possible contingencies. In a famous passage that everybody uses to discuss this is 1 Samuel 23, 10 through 14 where we read, Then David said, O Lord God of Israel, your servant has heard for certain that Saul is seeking to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down just as your servant has heard? O Lord God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hands of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Then David and his men, about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go, wherever they could go. When it was told Saul that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the pursuit. And David stayed in the wilderness in the strongholds and remained in the hill country in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand. That's 1 Samuel 23, verse 10 through 14. So here we have something very, very clearly said, very, very interesting. 
David asked the Lord if Saul would come down to him. God told him yes. David then asked that if Saul came down, would the men of the city give him to Saul? The Lord said yes. So these are things he's saying, hey, is this going to happen? Yes. Is the, if it does happen, will this happen? Yes. Then David left the city, and those things did not happen that way. So God told him what would happen if he stayed there. What would happen if Saul came down and he was still there? And then David left the city, and those things did not happen. Were they going to happen? Yes, if David stayed at the city. What was the thing that changed it? David chose to leave the city. And it changed what did happen. It does not in any way change the fact that it would have happened if David had stayed at the city of Keilah. Now, this is what is called middle knowledge or counterfactual knowledge. God does not only possess knowledge of what will certainly be, but what may be. He knows all possibilities as well. Now, we have to get into some technical words that are used really throughout the history of theology on these points, and they are certain words that, and I just have to say this because people get some, they somehow check out sometimes whenever you get into some technical things. Just remember that words, they're just ideas. They have meaning. That's it. Don't let words and deep academic type ideas ever dissuade you from just following something because learn the words, learn what they mean, and then follow the idea. That's it. So don't ever let academic type things or theological things discourage you from studying God's word. They're just ideas. Once you know what the idea is that's being communicated, if you know the scriptures, you can tell pretty quickly whether or not it's biblical. So the first word is certainty. And certainty simply means that something will, in fact, occur. It refers to the facticity of an event, whether or not it is a fact, right? When God knows something, because he is omniscient, he knows all things certainly. They are fact, and they will happen. What God says will happen, it will happen. Unless God himself says there's a contingency, unless God himself says this might not happen or something, right? Or it's based on this other thing happening that you need to choose about. If God says, hey, this is going to happen, it's certain. Nothing is going to change that. The reason God tells us things is because he knows they're certain. If there were second causes that could change what God says is going to happen when he doesn't attach a condition, then every single thing that God says and promises is suspect. Because you always just be wondering about, oh, what if this person did that? Or what if the devil came in and did that? No, 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 no. That's not how God's foreknowledge works. That's not how prophecy works. If God says something will happen, it will happen. It is certain. Now, the next word, necessity. Now, necessity means that the event can transpire in only one possible way because of a direct cause by a force, in this context, namely God, and that it is inevitable. This means that it is determined or foreordained. This is the idea of Calvinism. You know, you have certainty which says it will happen this way, right? And then you, and it says certainty is just referring that something does happen. You know, what will be, will be. It's, it's going to happen. Necessity is referring to how it happens and saying that it must happen that way because God said so. God did it. He caused it directly to happen. 
Now the third word, contingent. It's a word we all know pretty well. And that's when an event can truly take place in more than one way. Right? And there's confusion about this. It's This is really at the heart of the matter. If God knows the future, and he knows it certainly, that is, he knows exactly what will happen, and how then can man have free will to choose out of more than one way that something can happen, right? That would seem to be contradictory, because if it can only happen one way because God has said that, right, how is it then that you are free to make a choice? It would seem to be an illusion. And this is really at the heart of Calvinism. They say there is no real choice. They say God, in order for him to know all things, he has to cause all things. They say, well, if he, if man could make a legitimate choice, then God would not be able to see that choice. He would have to cause that choice to go his way. And that's a very small view of God. It really is. Now, the opposing viewpoint is that God knows what you will do, and he or he moves all things to bring, in fact, his own will, even including your will, to accomplish his will. And this will make more sense as we go forward. This is actually a very common sense understanding of God's knowledge. It really is. Um, if you just ask people, this is kind of what they automatically defer to. And there might be an argument against it in some people's mind, but remember, we're made in the image of God. You know, you have a certain fingerprint on your mind and how it works with logic and all such things. You might fight against that to do stupid things and sinful things, but nevertheless, God has said he's written your, his law on your heart. There is a fingerprint of God's mind on yours. And so let's move into this, some basic statements to start discussing the basic point of it, right? God's foreknowledge. God's foreknowledge is certain. He knows all things certainly. Now, foreknowledge is, of course, certain. He does not only know possibilities that he is guessing from. He's not going based on probabilities, right? He actually knows what will happen, and what will happen is certain to happen. He does not just guess. He knows. That's knowledge. That's omniscience. Now, there's some people who have overreacted to Calvinism and they call themselves open theists, a certain form of Arminianism, they say, uh, not from Jacobus Arminius himself, but from Hugo Grotius. It's not biblical. God absolutely does know the future. He knows all things. He knows all possibilities, and he knows what man will do. So God's foreknowledge, if he says it's going to happen, it's because it's certain. God is stating it because it's certain. Now next, some of these things, talking about the future, are truly contingent and yet still certain. See, some people think that, well, if something can happen more than one way, legitimately, then there's no way that you can be certain about what will happen. Well, no, that has nothing, that's not a contradiction at all. Saying that something is necessary, that God ordains all things, and something is contingent, is a contradiction. That's what some Calvinists try to say to maintain the illusion of free will, really trying to distance God from wickedness happening in the universe. But the fact is, certain is just referring to something that will happen. It's just stating how that it happens. It's not saying how it happens. The ideas of contingency and necessity are describing how something happens. Is it done by constraint, God making it happen, determinism? Or is it done by man's free will choice, right? And so there are things that God knows will definitely happen a particular way, i.e. they're certain, and yet it is possible for them to have happened a different way, i.e. they're contingent. 
And this is important to grasp. Foreknowledge is not foreordination. Knowing that something will happen a particular way is not the same thing as making it happen that way. If it will happen, then it will happen. God's foreknowledge is just that. It's knowledge beforehand. It is not, as the Calvinists claim and teach, influence. Whether or not something is truly contingent, and that it is possible to happen one of two or more ways, does not in any way affect the truth that it will happen certainly only one way. And God knows what is certain. Now let me break that down just a tiny bit more. It's, you walk into a room, right? There's three doors, one to your left, one in front of you, one on the right. You have three possibilities about what you will choose to do, right? But here's the thing. Whatever you choose, it will happen only one of those ways. Sorry, the multiverse theory is stupid. It's not biblical. It's not even rational. Whatever happens, it will happen one of those three ways. You will choose either left, forward, or right. The difference is God knows which one you're going to choose. And if he was to prophesy to somebody saying, see, he's walking into the room, he will go right. Him knowing that you will choose freely to go through the door on the right does not mean that he caused you to. He just knows what you will choose out of all three options that you freely have to choose from. And so this way, how something happens does not affect whether, you know, the fact that it happens, right? If it's contingent or determined, right? Because God could choose to make a universe where he determines everything. He could. The Bible makes very clear he did not do that. But I don't want to get ahead of myself. So his foreknowledge, his knowledge beforehand of what will happen does not affect contingency at all. Calvinists believe that God only knows what is going to happen because he causes it to happen. In this way, consistent Calvinists don't believe that anything is contingent. They say it only appears to be contingent. This is nothing new. Philosophers argue this stuff for centuries. It's nothing new. The difference is we have the Bible and God's revelation to tell us how it actually is. So in their view, everything is predetermined. Now, the consistent Calvinists will openly say that. There's literally a podcast called The Consistent Calvinist. His name's Colin. He openly will, says that he is a determinist. Okay, I'm sorry, that's not biblical. Okay, now the next point. We've talked about briefly the two points just to wrap your head around. God's foreknowledge is certain. He knows all things certainly. If he says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Some of these things that he knows are going to happen are contingent. They can happen in more than one way. And yet, what he knows is still certain, right? The last point, some of these things, that is, things that God foreknows, are necessary and certain. And this is where people say, well, wait, wait, what do you mean? How can some things be predetermined by God and then other things not? Here's the thing. That's a false either or. That's a fallacy. It is. It's a fallacy to say it must be all one way or it must be all the other. No. God is not a tiny God. He's an omnipotent God. He's not afraid of free will beings. And his, these free will beings do not in any way limit God or make things difficult for him. Is anything too hard for the Lord? So while it is true that some things are truly contingent, 
other things are necessary. That means God does foreordain or predetermine by his direct decree that some things will happen a particular way. The writing of scripture is an example of this, or the crucifixion of Jesus. He determined certain things would happen a particular way. But that idea that some things will happen predetermined a certain way does not logically at all follow to say that all things necessarily happen this way. That is a fallacy. That's a non sequitur. To say that some things happen a certain way, you cannot logically jump to say, therefore, all. You know, when you say some S is P, for those of you who study logic or philosophy, you cannot automatically then assume, therefore, all S is P. That's false. That's not sound. It's not valid. Now, here's an example that, an illustration, I should say, that will help to contrast the Calvinist and the biblical view of God's foreknowledge, okay? Um, it may be compared to going to the park one afternoon and finding that one of those outside chess-playing areas has been built and many people are there playing, right? To the left, you see a man playing by himself. He moves a piece on one side, and then he moves to the other side of the table to move a piece from the opposing side. You walk over and ask him, Sir, why are you playing both sides of the board? He answers, Son, it's the only way that I can be certain to win every game. After this, you walk over to the other side of the chess area and see one man going from board to board to board, playing 15 different people at once and beating them all effortlessly. This man could win no matter who he played against or how many opponents there were. Which man was the better chess player, the one who could play anyone, even all of them at once, and defeat them all effortlessly? or the man who had to play both sides of the board to ensure that he would win. You see, it doesn't matter if man has a free will of his own and is choosing things. God knows what a man will choose and can still accomplish his will. Calvinism requires God to be playing both sides of the board because he's afraid or unable to have other beings with some kind of free will. That's not the God of the Bible. Nothing limits God. It's a very small view of God's omniscience. And as um, I know Leighton Flowers in Soteriology 101 points this out all the time, and it's nothing new, this is something that's historically, a lot of people have argued, for Calvinism to be true, God has to limit his omnipotence or, and literally then not be omnipotent, or his omniscience and not be omniscient. They both can't be true when Calvinism, because they Calvinism necessitates God to predetermine all things for him to know all things. Well, if he needs it to be that way, then there's something he can't do. We're not talking about things contrary to his nature, where some people say, well, it's contrary to his nature, because he needs all glory. But God's not a black hole of glory. God is the most self-sacrificing being in the universe, constantly giving of himself to people who hate him. He supports the breath of the atheists who rage against him, God is not just some glory black hole, as um, Austin Fisher put it. I'm sorry, that's not a view of God. Now, he will not give his glory to another. He has appointed a day in which all things will be dealt with, and he will be glorified the way that he deserves in all things. But I'm sorry, right now, at this time in the universe, God is crying out saying, you know, you know turn you, turn you, for why will you die? Because he's not willing that any should perish, contrary to what some teachers believe. So it's not, you can't just limit God's omniscience or God's omnipotence. He either is all-powerful and he's all-knowing, and that includes all. But that's not Calvinism. That's not. And they would be really offended by pointing that out 
But that's just true philosophically when you look at their arguments. But the thing is, most Calvinists do not really understand their system. Most of the time, the people that come out of Calvinism are the ones who actually do get down to brass tacks and study their theology and its implications. Here's another illustration. Uh, Robert Pick really uh, uses this uh, in his in his book, um, Grace, Faith, and Free Will. This is, quote, To provide a simple illustration, let us suppose that tomorrow I will come to a fork in a road and need to choose which way to travel. The fact is that I will choose one or the other, and the one that I will choose is the one that I will certainly choose. But this is not at all to say that I must, by necessity, choose it. In fact, I will be free to choose either route, considering whatever I wish to consider at that time. Indeed, then, he most certainly knows that I will be free to make either choice tomorrow, and I will be free to make either choice. Likewise, he most certainly knows which choice I will make, and I will certainly and freely make that choice. His knowledge of which I will choose, as knowledge, does not limit my choice. Indeed, he also perfectly knows what would happen if I should make the other choice. So in this way, God's foreknowledge does not limit man's libertarian free will. Foreknowledge does not cause anything, but only relates to what is certain. The man, as per the illustration, will make a free will choice, and he is truly free to choose of either option. God knows beforehand, that is, he foreknows, what the man will choose. So whether or not something is truly contingent, and that it may happen one of two or more ways, does not in any way affect the truth that it will happen certainly only one way. And God knows what is certain. His foreknowledge does not affect contingency at all. So what are the practical things to take from this? There are true contingencies in life. Your life is not just some predetermined course of events that you have no choice in. It's just that God knows the choices that you are going to make. Now, God influences, he draws man, he convicts him, he does not force his decision-making. We can talk about reprobation another week. The Calvinist view of that is also completely wrong. And this is an important point to make. I was just talking to a young man this uh, past week, actually just the other day, and he was convinced that there was no free will because of all the wicked things he saw around him. And he didn't understand, and it really was, it was a demonic deception going on in him at the time, that he just couldn't wrap his head around free will while there's still wickedness in the universe. You know, he just... He wanted to understand why his life was miserable. And so I just had to explain to him briefly the fact that, hey, God's not the one doing all these things, right? But that's a whole other thing, and I've addressed the issue of, you know, evil and stuff in the world before, you know. But just understand, God's not forcing you to not belong to him. God's not forcing you to do wicked things. God does not tempt any man with evil. The scriptures make very clear. God is not the one who has, you know, kept himself from you. It says that the Lord is seeking to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on the behalf of them whose heart is perfect towards him. 
It says, Christ said that if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Whether or not men yield to God drawing him, that's another matter. God's not the one keeping people away from him. And so, no, you're not predetermined in anything in your life in that sense. You have contingency. You have choice. So next, God uses man's free will choices while still accomplishing his will. He doesn't need to control you like a robot to accomplish anything. And we know this. We all know that the stories from the scriptures that make this very clear. Um, the story of Joseph in the scriptures. At the end of his life, when his brothers come to him after their father died, and they're worried that he's going to take vengeance on them for what they did to him. He says in Genesis chapter 50, verses 19 through 20, says, But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. And we know that from Romans 8, 28, and we know that all that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. God uses men's evil decisions and wrong choices to still accomplish his will and even bring about good from them. You know, how many times are we going to hear songs about you take what the enemy meant for evil and you turn it for our good? You know, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. You know, all these things are because God knows man's choice, and he can use those choices to accomplish his will. Next, God has predetermined that you will make choices, but he has not predetermined what you will choose. He only knows beforehand what you will freely choose when you get there. Now, God is sovereign. He does put you into positions. He does choose what options that you have, such as whether or not to accept salvation by grace through faith. He does not force you to choose one or the other. You may not feel like you have a choice just because of your wicked heart. And honestly, that's more and more what I see whenever I hear people talking about, well, I have no choice. You know, I had to do this wicked thing. I've heard people say that. That's what some people said during World War II with the Nazis. Well, I had no choice. They were going to kill me. Well, no, you just stated the choice. You could choose to do what's right and die. You may not like the consequences, but the fact of the matter is you're making choices all the time. Choose the righteous, forsake the unrighteous. It's pretty straightforward, really. So God has determined that you will make choices. He has not predetermined what you will choose. And last, and this is a big one. This is growing in professing Christianity, too, that people just don't want to stand on. God's word can never be wrong. If he says that something will happen, then it is certain. Men cannot thwart God's omniscience. God does sometimes attach conditions or contingencies to what he says, such as condition of promises, if ye, then I. But if he says something will happen, then it is certain. So when someone says, well, God told me such and such would happen, and then it doesn't happen, then that person is prophesied falsely. It's the lexical definition of a false prophet, even if it's just personal. If somebody says it, and that's different than somebody believing God told them something and them keeping it to themselves, and then it not happening, and then they're like, oh, you know, thank goodness I didn't tell people about that. And this is really important because in the New Apostolic Reformation and the hyper-Pentecostal and hyper-charismatic movement, this is how they defend false prophets. This is how they've always defended false prophets. Nevertheless, God's word stands sure, all the way back 
to the law of Moses. It says, Deuteronomy 18, 21-22, You may say in your heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. And this is very important. This is based on God's foreknowledge. If God says it will happen, it will happen. That's why if it doesn't happen, that's not God. Because if you accept some idea of God's will being thwarted, when God himself did not attach a condition, right? You know, if God's will can be thwarted by quote-unquote secondary causes, like, well, this person did that, that person did this or that, then you will never again properly have confidence in God's promises. Ever. You will always be questioning, well, what about this over here? Can that stop it? Fact of the matter is, when that happens, somebody has to acknowledge humbly. They either did not hear God. You know, there's the possibility of misunderstanding God, which is why you're not supposed to speak quickly about these things. But when God says something, it happens. To say anything else is by definition to prophesy falsely. Even if somebody doesn't say they're a prophet, somebody said, the Lord said this. That is the definition of prophesying. And according to the to the scriptures, that disqualifies somebody from ministry. Now, of course, that person can repent. They can get right with the Lord. Of course, God can still use them. That's, we're not talking about casting people out of the body of Christ when there's repentance, okay? And sometimes people make these mistakes because they've been taught wrong. But this is why you do not speak quickly about what things that you believe God told, tells you. There was a time in my life that I was praying very heavily for something uh, over a couple years. And the thing was, there was a situation in front of me that I believed it was God's, what, you know, I, what I believed God was going to do. And I didn't understand it. There was a lot of things pointing to it not happening in the natural Literally somebody saying, no, never, right? And then, I, when I was praying about it one evening, it was a Wednesday night, I felt the Lord clearly tell me some things very, very clearly. And it was, this is going to happen, pretty much, to cut a long story short. And it was so clear, it was almost as clear as if somebody was literally just sitting next to me talking to me. This is one of the only times in my Christian life that's ever happened. But I've been praying very fervently for a long time about this. And you know what? I didn't tell anybody. Right? I just kept it to myself before God. It wasn't something for anybody else. And I believed that what I had heard was the Lord telling me and answering my prayers. And you know what happened? It happened exactly like what I was told. So now I can confidently say that was the Lord. And it was a lesson to me. God does reveal things to people personally when you pray. God does lead his children. Be careful about saying things out loud until you've confirmed certain things. There's a lot of people running around saying, God told me this, God told me that. It never happens. None of those people are eligible for ministry. That hurts some people. But I'm sorry, people have to humble themselves and really just submit themselves to the word of God. But in the context of Calvinism, it takes away man's free will. Now, we're talking about that more throughout this series. I've decided not to do a whole 
lesson on free will because the reason Calvinism does not like the idea of libertarian free will is because of the other points. And it is their view of determinism. They must not believe in libertarian free will because you don't ever let the door crack open a little bit lest a foot of conditionality ever get in. And we'll be talking more about that um, throughout the next coming weeks. Thank you for listening to Remnant Bible Fellowship. We do hope and pray that you would commit your life to Christ and continue in Him. We desire to see people seeking Jesus Christ and coming to know Him personally. If you have questions about salvation, the Bible, or your own walk with Christ, please contact Brother Jonathan by email. Brother John, that's J-O-N, at remnantbiblefellowship.com. That's Brother John at remnantbiblefellowship.com.